Good evening. This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our spotlight is on your vote and redistricting. My guest is Steve Suits. He's an author and professor of the Institute for Liberal Arts at Emory University. He's also the founder of the Alabama Civil Liberties Union, author of the book, Hugo Black of Alabama, how his roots and early careers shaped the great champion of the Constitution and overturning Brown, the segregationist legacy of the modern school choice movement. We talk about this redistricting that's going to come up before the Supreme Court, the case known as Merrill versus Milligan, and that should be in early 2023. Uh, the premise of this is looking at how Alabama's new congressional map violates the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And should race play a difference in this redistricting process? We talked to Steve Suits about this. He knows a great deal about Alabama. He grew up here and throughout the South and now teaching over in Atlanta. We start this awesome interview. Stephen Suits and I are coming at you right now. The reason why I wanted you to come on the show was because of your background in the South and understanding not only the history, but also uh, the ways of the South, of, of it being sort of in transition, <laughs> I, I guess. Right. You could speak to that. But I wanted for you first to tell our audience who you are and a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, I'm Steve Suits. I'm a, a native of, Al of Alabama, North Alabama. I uh, grew up uh, in Alabama and went to the University of Alabama. Uh, and uh, after I, uh, I left the university to, to uh, join the Selma Project, which was a uh, interreligious organization founded after the Selma March, in order to provide legal and technical assistance to uh, community groups in the Black Belt of Alabama and in part of Mississippi. I, um, I later founded the uh, Alabama Civil Liberties Union, and um, after five or six years, I moved to Atlanta to head up the Southern Regional Council, which at that time was the, uh, the oldest interracial organization in the American South. And I stayed there for a little under 20 years, and we focused uh, in large part on um, on voting and voting rights, uh, redistricting. Uh, I was involved with a lot of other uh, people of goodwill in, uh, in the fight to renew the Voting Rights Act in 1982 during the Reagan administration, and rather miraculously, we were able to, to renew it and strengthen it uh, after um, the Supreme Court attempted to weaken it in a case that came out of Mobile, Alabama. And then uh, uh, later on, I, um, I uh, went to, um, to the Southern Education Foundation, uh, where I spent another two decades working on the issues of, of, uh, of the right of education for uh, all children in the South. And... Uh, uh, during much of that time, I've been an adjunct at Emory University, where I've been writing about issues of voting rights and education. 
It's an interesting time to have you on in that we are right before an election season, a week away, and the uh, Supreme Court now is getting ready to hear Merrill versus Milligan about uh, redistricting and all the different components. Uh, it has to do with voting. It has to do with definitely race. It has to do with economics. It has to do with so much. Why are we at this at this particular time with all the laws on the books and, and whatnot? We've got this crazy, you know, redistricting where the majority in a district doesn't even have a say in representation that represents them. Well, you know, ever since uh, the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was passed, there's been the fight, especially in in the southern states, over um, whether or not uh, black folks would be given a full and unfettered right to vote and whether that vote would count. And that history began in 1868, and regrettably too much of it lingers today. The, 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 uh, we did just this past uh, week have the oral arguments in the Alabama case, the Merrill case, and uh, it, it was not a, an encouraging event for those of us who believed in uh, the universal right to vote. It showed that the court is probably going to whittle away at the Voting Rights Act rather than uh, overturn it or revoke Section 2, which has been there to protect not only the right to vote, but to have that vote count uh, equally, regardless of race. So I think we, uh, we've we been at this fight for a long time, and the Amer- history of the American South is that it uh, it has always had a primary disagreement between white most white folks and most black folks about what ought to be the rules and regulations that govern the right to vote and uh, the right to have that vote counted equally at the polls. So I don't think it's anything new. Uh, in fact, there's uh, every major issue that we have uh, relating to possible violations of voting rights and the efforts to suppress voting has a precedent in our uh, southern history. And so we are replaying that history uh, even as we go into the 19. Uh, beyond the 19th and 20th centuries into the 21st century. Wow. Um, you have areas like Alabama and Louisiana that only have one African-American um, or minority representative uh, out of all the, the six or seven districts. And uh, the first one in Alabama was Mr. Ed Hilliard, uh, Earl Hilliard. He was there first. Um, uh, I I just don't understand how you can be a majority, but yet you only have that one area in in a state that has a a representative. I used to work for a legislator who since passed about a year ago. He was one of my clients. And he was saying that they were hoping to get a district that went from Montgomery, Alabama, all the way to Mobile. Mm-hmm. 
And um, that would depend, of course, on census, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen, at least right now. Do you see anything, because um, you just mentioned the Voting Rights Act and, you know, how it's been whittled away. Uh, do you see anything changing? Uh, and can race be used in this argument with Verrall versus Milligan uh, to make a difference? Well, I think that this court does not believe that race should be a primary factor in redistricting or even as we will hear from oral arguments this week uh, at the Supreme Court on matters of admission to colleges or, or, or any other decision making. Uh, it, it It is a court which is firmly in the view that rule that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees equal protection of law, means that race should not be considered, that it should be, in the, in the words of Justice Thomas, colorblind. So I think we, we will not be able to uh, rely upon uh, the court to permit or to even require that race be considered in developing uh, a a redistricting plan in Alabama in as much as uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, actually requires race to be considered. And there lies the conflict. We have a congressional enactment which says that you need to look to through various steps to determine in what is what the lawyers uh, we call the, the jingles test to see if there is a cohesive number of black folks who could be represented at the polls but are not, and if there is a cohesive white voting group, a majority oftentimes, where uh, where they uh, in fact vote always uh, in opposition, or not always, but usually in opposition to the candidate of choice of the black community. And if that is the case, those tests are made, then uh, the uh, the Voting Rights Act under Section 2, as it was amended in 1982, says that uh, the courts should, in fact, assure that white folks cannot annul the votes of every choice of black voters or most of black voters uh, and that race can be considered. The, the court's going to whittle away at that uh, that that act and that section two, and they're going to try to uh, assure that race isn't considered. In fact, uh, very disturbing uh, was the the argument at the Supreme Court over the Merrill case was very disturbing. Justice Alito, uh, who wrote the last opinion that uh, whittled away at section two in regard to to matters of, of polling places and, and uh, matters unrelated to redistricting but related to voting. Justice Alito said that, well, from the bench, he said, well, you know, it's not that white folks are not choosing uh, to support the candidates of black voters because of race, it's because they have a different philosophy, a different way that they think government should be conducting itself. So it's not really race that's at issue here in this this method of by which a majority of white voters are always able to, to vote, or often able to vote against black voters' choice. 
but it's it's their different philosophy. So it doesn't you you can't enforce the Voting Rights Act because it's not about race. It's about uh, differing uh, philosophies that black folks and white folks have. Well, that is such a dishonest or disingenuous uh, argument because it's always been the fact. I mean, you go back to 1870 when uh, in Alabama, when the Constitution, uh, the new Reconstruction Constitution uh, was in place, uh, the the folks were trying to get to get folks to vote for uh, the Constitution, the new Constitution. And the fact is that uh, white folks said, "Oh, we're not uh, we're not going to vote against uh, the the, the uh, Reconstruction Constitution because of." Black folks support it. We were going to vote for it because uh, they don't. It's, uh, they have a different view of, of what they want in government, and, and we have our view, and they have theirs, and we believe ours is better. Well, it's always been partisan uh, because uh, when you have white folks usually voting against black folks' choices, it means that they want a government that's going to have their values, not black folks' values. And that's, that's racism. That's, it may be partisan, but it's racism. So we've had this uh, problem uh, in this, uh, this approach to uh, trying to annul the very fact that race remains what too often divides voters. And that if we're going to get past the situation where black folks don't have the representation that their numbers deserve and their democracy require, then we're going to have to, in fact, make sure that black folks get representation so that they can help protect and change the democracy for all people. There has always been a question my listeners uh, ask uh, in reading the 15th Amendment to the Constitution and then the 65 Voting Rights Act. And, and just, just go to the Reconstruction um, Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Then you've got the 65 Voting Rights Act. Can you tell us the difference between being given the right to vote in the uh, 19th century and then the 20th century? Uh, can you break that down where people can digest it? Because they say, oh, it's like every century we have, we have to re- keep revisiting, but then every 20 years they have to redo it. Right. Well, the, the Voting Rights Act was, uh, was sustained by the Supreme Court after its passage in 1965. Uh, as an implementation of the 15th Amendment. Uh, And the the Congress passed it in hopes that it would be a temporary necessity, that that after a few years that the the problems of of that the Voting Rights Act were attempting to address would go away. Well, they haven't gone away, and uh, that's a sad fact. Uh, in, in back in 1982, when when we uh, we pushed for the renewal of the act for uh, 25 years, the uh, we, we 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 
showed that during uh, the, the, the previous almost two decades, very little had changed in the way uh, white folks were voting in most elections where blacks had a candidate of their choice. And we showed that there was a large, uh, a, a large widespread non-compliance with much of the Voting Rights Act, especially with what was Section 5, which is no longer in the Act because the Supreme Court uh, six years ago held it void. But there, there, there was a large pattern of non-compliance. Uh, people, uh, local governments, state governments were not submitting uh, the uh, voting changes for the Justice Department or the, or the federal courts of the District of Columbia to review before they were implemented. And many of them were, in fact, designed to diminish, to dilute black voting strength. Uh, we, what, what the Act did in 1965 was essentially open up registration, which was the primary battleground before 1965, to all folks. And so there was a huge gain from 65 to the early 70s in the number of black folks who were registered to vote. Uh, probably your audience knows much about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the traditions and the stories of how uh, southern white officials who were in the, supposed to be registering folks fairly were uh, were denying black folks the right to register to vote on, on spurious and, and just absolutely uh, ridiculous reasons. Uh, I guess the most popularly known one is how many uh, bubbles are there in a, on a bar of soap or how many jelly beans are there in a, um, a jar of jelly beans? Uh, th those were not as common as, as the folklore has, but what was fairly common was, was asking people obscure questions about the Constitution if they were black folks and requiring them to give correct answers. And even when they did give correct answers, uh, saying that they didn't, uh, they didn't give exactly the right answer that should have. There were all sorts of reasons. So once the Voting Rights Act began to have federal examiners registering people in the Deep South, regardless of race, and most of those who did register were black folks, then uh, the, uh, the, the battleground on voting rights began to shift away from voter registration, although it's still a big issue. Um, as you may know, uh, the state of Georgia, for example, in a period of less than four years, five years, six years before the, the uh, 2018 elections uh, removed 1.4 million people from the voting rolls, uh, purged them wow. uh, for various reasons, uh, none of which uh, really made a lot of sense to those of us who believe in universal right to vote. So it's still an issue, but many of the battlegrounds moved over from registration to the issues of, of representation, uh, how to draw a district, uh, how to create a voting scheme in which uh, black folks might be able to vote, but they weren't going to have as much chance to have their vote count so that their candidate would be elected just as equally, an equal chance of their candidate being elected 
as the candidate of white folks. There was a period in this time in the 70s and 80s where we hoped that the whole notion of folks voting according to race would, would disappear. It did not. Sadly, it did not. Uh, and we continue. Uh, the case in the Merrill case is based upon the fact that in Alabama, uh, if, if black folks are not a majority of a congressional district, it is most likely that their choice of candidates will always lose because white folks will not vote for the candidate of the choice of black folks. Well, that's why we got into a fight on redistricting, and that's why the, the Alabama case is there. Um, the, the, the battleground today across the South is both on registration, uh, polling uh, options, and on redistricting. And so, in some ways, we've, 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 we thought we were going to get rid of the issues of, of voter registration as a contested question between blacks and whites. But those issues have now returned, as and the issues of of race and redistricting remain with us. So, in some ways, we've we've, we've got uh, we've got more kinds of voting rights issues in 2022 than we had in 1964. Wow, that says a mouthful in terms it of uh, it just. We haven't, and and the fighting of you know the redistricting. And here's how I know a bit about redistricting. I found out as a kid. I I went to school in the Washington metropolitan area, one of the top schools in the country. When they they rate the schools by state, and uh, we lived in a upper middle class section, but it was on the line of where they kept gerrymandering back and forth with these voting and school districts. It just kept going back and forth. So I went to one school in fifth grade, one school in sixth grade, one school in seventh grade, one school in eighth grade, and I only went to one school finishing high school. And the very people at the very end of it all of my school schooling uh, who wanted not to have their kids go to school with certain types of kids or be in a certain whatever, well, it turned out that they had to all wind up going to the very same school they were trying to avoid. <laughs> it just was insane. And when I come south, the school districts are like 49th and 50th. Then you've got these charter schools and these private schools and these whatever schools. How don't don't you think people would say, hey, we want the best for our kids, the best for our state in terms of businesses to be attracted to come there. If they keep doing this redistricting and you let certain areas go down because, you know, of race and whatever, class, it, everybody loses. Yeah. Right? Well, I think I think that's exactly right. It's really quite insightful. Uh, we, we in in education as in politics, uh, too many of us think of it as a zero-sum game. If I, if you win, I lose. And you know when they draw, uh, when, when school district lines are drawn, folks think about uh, you know that if 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 I don't get 
make sure that my house is in the best school district, then uh, I'm going to lose out. And it, uh, I won't want my kids to go to school with kids who are like my kids and because they have share, uh, you know, the kind of uh, class and race uh, uh, upbringing that, that my kids have had. And so it becomes a zero-sum game in education. And it's true of our politics. We draw these lines because we think that if we give uh, black folks, uh, we white folks think that if we give black folks a chance to have a candidate of their choice, then we're going to lose something. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, as I said, I... Um, I have I have never worked in uh, an organization that has not been interracial uh, my entire adult life, and the reason I have made that important to me is because we've, uh, in, in the words of, the, of of Rodney King, which we uh, we sometimes forget his wisdom uh, back out there in California is. We all have to live together. And, you know, Justice Thurgood Marshall, in, a, in an opinion on, on, the, on education, uh, said in, in a dissent, he said, um, essentially, if we do not go to school together, how will we ever learn to live together? And it's a pretty fundamental notion that when you live together, you it's a it's a matter whether it's uh, with a, a spouse, a partner, a family. When you live together, you it's a give and take. It's it's somebody who sees that the, that you're all in it together. And I'm afraid both the fights over schooling and the fights over our politics show that we don't think we're all in this together. I'm going to throw a question at it. It's, it's funny. You mentioned something. You you say that people want their kids, everybody wants their kids in the best school district or, you know, something that's advantageous to help their kids and even jobs. They want to live in a great district where jobs are attractive, the, you know, quality jobs, the quality everything, quality of life. Um, we, we all want that. But from what you're saying – because we're talking about voting, uh, it's all socioeconomic. And maybe in teaching people that it's all about that, or at least, you know, um, you know, yeah, let's say it's all about that, you know, your education, mm-hmm. where you live, the laws, the people, the monies that are coming from the state. Don't you think the civics and education could be better? Because usually people just go and say, okay, my mom and dad are – a liberal or a conservative, so I am too, but they don't know what that is, and they don't know how the political process affects them. We're not teaching that in school. Now, being in Washington, D.C., uh, it's extremely political uh, in, in Northern Virginia, very political. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing that play out on a daily, weekly basis. But when you get to the South, it's a little bit hidden because you've got a lot of poor states like Mississippi, Alabama, um, and from what I'm understanding and saw firsthand when I even got to college, some of these people 
and other other states too couldn't compete enough to stay at a university level. So it didn't mean that they didn't have the aptitude with a little bit of help, but mm-hmm. you know, we're all losing yeah. in all ways, socioeconomically. Don't you think that should be taught at the civic level? Oh, absolutely. I think I think we do. Uh, we've undervalued uh, civic education and uh, the, uh, understanding how the political process can work best and, and how it should be working. Uh, or we've, we've become, uh, I think, overly uh, focused on the sciences uh, in this technological world. But if our um, if our capacity to uh, to grapple with with Disagreements and different perspectives and different people in our in our communities and our civic life. If we, if we don't have a basis for understanding how to work those things out, uh, technology is not going to save a nation nor, nor a community. Um, you know, I do think um, economics and race are are tied together in so many ways. Uh, uh, and, and it's it's both reality and perception. Uh, the reality is certainly in the in the South that um, that since uh, most Black folks uh, have ancestors who came out of slavery, and and uh, that meant that they were landless and destitute when set free, and were given uh, very little uh, assistance once they became full citizens under the Constitution. That that uh, over the generations you're going to have a population that's probably going to be uh, more uh, poor than than the folks who who were not uh, enslaved and uh, and penniless or or land and landless when they were set free on the continent. Uh, but you also have a perception, which is that uh, most surveys have for several for since they've been surveying. Uh, most white folks think that uh, that the majority of poor people in the United States are black. Uh, it's been true for uh, for since surveys started. That in fact, uh, in terms of numbers, there are more white folks uh, than black folks who are poor in this country. But mm-hmm. but we've uh, we've we we white folks have held on to that notion that that being black means uh, that you. You're you're a poor person, and they recognize there's exceptions to the rule in their lives, but they still hold that general misconception. And there is a higher percentage of poverty among black folks than white folks, but most of the poor in the United States have been and remain white, regardless of ethnicity. So... Uh, I think we have a problem of, of both reality and perception that get, gets to be a part of, of what we talk about sometimes when we're talking about issues of race, and it gets to be complicated. But at the bottom, at bottom, it means this to my mind: it means that we have to be very conscious of race and very conscious of how we try to to make sure that equal justice to all is in fact not compromised or diminished because of race and you can only do that if you consider how things are being played out due to race mm-hmm. and that's a an opinion that the Supreme Court flatly rejects today one 
last thing I wanted to bring up in this interview is that there was a burgeoning middle class for blacks, but you see the land that used to be black owned, you've got a federal highway running through much of it in the southern states as well as the Midwest and and, and the, some of the north. You did have thriving black businesses mm. and Centennial Hill and and Detroit. Mm. And, of course, we've heard about what happened in Oklahoma uh, and the survivors there, um, you know, of uh, Greenwood, Archer, and Pine uh, getting their land mm -hmm. torched. Uh, and so we do have, even today, prosperous areas where mm -hmm. blacks live. But the lines, when I look at this, uh, you know, Merrill versus Milligan, uh, how many states do you think that this is, is going to affect immediately if we get some positivity uh, in terms of the way these lines are drawn? Uh, I worked for somebody who was a state legislator. He just passed away. Uh, about a year ago, and um, he was hoping that we'd get another district uh, in the South, but that didn't happen. Well, I think, um, I don't think we're going to, uh, you know, Alabama has seven congressional districts. It has a African-American population of about 28.2%. Mm -hmm. uh, it has one majority black congressional district. It, it is a state in which, in congressional races, uh, white folks do not vote for the candidates who are the candidates of the choice of black communities. So, a black, uh, a majority, another majority black district is possible. It's the only way that uh, that folks uh, in black folks in Alabama are going at this time to get an equal opportunity to elect candidates and to have their votes count. But the Supreme Court's not going to permit it. It's going to, it, it, as sure as you and I are talking today, the court will not permit the second congressional district to become a majority black. Although, um, in another day, the Voting Rights Act would have required it. Um, so I, I think this ties in to this this whole notion about civic education. We, the Constitution, um, Hugo Black, who was an Alabamian who sat on the Supreme Court, uh, prophetically said once, most people believe the Constitution supports what they support and opposes what they oppose. And this Supreme Court certainly believes that the Constitution does not permit uh, folks to uh, to have laws where race is a primary consideration for good or bad. And usually uh, they're striking down the laws where uh, race is uh, is being considered for for ensuring a more universal right to vote and to have that vote count. Uh, we 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 need to remember that it, it's been uh, over almost ten years or since uh, Supreme Court held that a school district, a public school district, cannot consider race in order to remedy. Uh, uh, the problems of past segregation. Um, this is a court that is 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 going to um, to to constrain what we are able to do to promote universal voting. And uh, folks who um, 
the civic lesson is uh, uh, that Supreme Court justices get appointed for life uh, right now uh, by the president, whoever is the president. Although the civic, a good civic lesson would teach us too that it is not written in the Constitution that uh, they would be there for life. The fact is, Congress could, in fact, enact legislation to permit the Supreme Court justices to have only a limited term of office rather than a life term. So civics would be useful right now for understanding what are the what are the options in dealing with the problems we face in in trying to advance universal voting in this country. Thanks so much for being with us. I really appreciate um, all the insight you've given us in terms of uh, not only the civics, but the history, because, you know, people say just get out and vote. Well, I just think that falls flat for many people who are disenfranchised with what's going on right now in politics and not seeing change happen fast enough. Um, what would you say to the avid voter right now? And what would you say to those of us who 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 haven't given up hope? I would I would say what we said in the 1960s: keep the faith. Um, the truth is that uh, our democracy is not always working the way it should be. But uh, the, when when you think about, I mean, look, I I now live in in the state of Georgia. I've lived here for 45 years. I grew up in Alabama. Uh, I uh, I never uh, when I got to vote in Alabama I never vote I was never able to vote for anyone who ever won an election in Alabama uh, I had to move over here to and uh, when uh, when John Lewis was my council member to to vote for somebody who who actually won an election so it it, it but but we've come a long way uh, from there there and we have a long way to go so I I think keep the faith is the is the watchword. Uh, it, uh, we, we don't always, we have all these fights that we've got to do, but the fight only can ultimately win if we do, in fact, continue to vote and, and push and take the time to, to get others to vote as well. Uh, you know, what I would say to people who are discouraged about whether their vote is counting is that things change. And but remember this about that vote: uh, there are people uh, who uh, have enormous wealth in this country. Uh, we have a huge number of billionaires uh, by comparison to the past. Uh, there are people who have enormous amount of, of, of land and such. But there is nothing in our country which equalizes us more than the right to vote. No matter how rich, no matter how poor, no matter how sick, no matter how healthy, no matter what your circumstances is, when you go to the polls, that vote is equal to any other person in this country. And that is a power of equality that if we don't use it, ultimately we lose it. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being with us. And um, we hope to have you back. Thanks so much. 
it's been a delight, and uh, it's a wide, it was a wide-ranging conversation, but th- those are the ones that put things together. Thanks a lot. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright October 31st, 2022.